Look, Brad, I have to find 12,000 votes. I need 11,000 votes. Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. Don't ask me, Mr. President. You should be in jail. As far as I'm concerned, I got the feeling that something right. you got your own problems, I'm buddy. I'm scared in case I fall off my chair, and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Rochester, New York on WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, and Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe, even in a new year, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us in 2021. It is great to have you here with 16 days left until Inauguration Day, or as I prefer to think about it, Just 16 days left in the Trump presidency. Trump will be president for 16 more days only. I am 99% sure about that, but it may be a very bumpy 16 days, which I will discuss with my guest shortly, and perhaps even with you at 818-985-5735, if time allows a little bit later in the show. Uh, Along related lines, Joe Biden's Electoral College, quote, landslide defeat of Donald Trump, again, quoting Donald Trump there, um, will be affirmed or not by Congress on Wednesday of this week. And the final day for Georgians to cast their votes in the state's two ongoing critical U.S. Senate runoff elections to determine control of the U.S. Senate for the next two years. That last day to vote is Tuesday. So, yeah, incredibly busy and insane week to start the year. Welcome to 2021. And welcome back to the broadcast. Uh, first, my thanks to Nicole Sandler for filling in for us last week. So Desi Doyen and I could get a bit of much needed downtime. Desi Doyen, did you get enough uh, downtime? 
never enough. But hey, it was uh, it was nice to be away from the maelstrom for a moment. There you go. Uh, it was for a moment. Uh, as usual, by the way, Nicole had some great shows uh, and terrific interviews that I will recommend you check out if you miss them. You can download them for free at bradblog.com. They are always downloadable and shareable there. Thanks to those of you who support this program. There is far too much that has happened over the long holiday weekend to uh, possibly get you completely up to date. So we begin the year not unlike we have spent much of the last four years, I think, in uh, in triage mode with a quick review of just the most critical points that we need to know Moving forward for the moment, the 117th U.S. Congress convened to be sworn in on Sunday with a narrow majority for Republicans for now in the U.S. Senate and an even narrower majority for Democrats in the U.S. House, where members narrowly elected Nancy Pelosi to be House Speaker once again, with Democrats enjoying the the slimmest majority for either party in the U.S. House in two decades. Before the new Congress convened, however, both houses voted to override Donald Trump's veto of the annual military spending bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, after Trump's attempt to block the must-pass $780 billion measure to fund the military for another year based on his objections to Congress's approval for renaming military bases currently named after Confederate Army generals and due to his insistence that the bill revoke a measure from the unrelated Communications Decency Act, which currently offers limited liability to social media outlets for what users may post to their sites online. And while Trump has no actual problem with the so-called Section 230, he thinks Uh, that doing away with that liability for these companies will uh, give him some measure of revenge against these companies who he and other right-wingers are pretending to believe that that they are being unfairly politically targeted by them, by Twitter and Facebook and so forth. Uh, He also may have disagreed with Congress making it more difficult for the president to remove troops from certain overseas deployments, without congressional approval. But at least on those scores, enough Republicans in Congress broke with the president to overcome his dumb stated objections. Despite agreement between Trump and Democrats and a number of Republicans in Congress, Republican Senator Mitch uh, Mitch McConnell, Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, leader for now in any event, uh, has successfully been able to block the call for $2,000 checks rather than the meager $600 check to be sent to struggling Americans amid our still worsening pandemic, which has now officially uh, resulted over the weekend in more than 350,000 tragic deaths, over 20 million infections now in the U.S., uh, with more than 125,000 Americans currently in hospitals fighting the deadly COVID-19 virus. And while 350,000 dead Americans is a a gut-wrenching, heartbreaking number, it's one that, you know, like so many other numerical landmarks uh, during this plague, uh, is not sufficiently comprehended by the repetition of that number, 350,000. It's not just... 
350,000 lives lost. It is 350,000 American families who have lost loved ones over just the past nine months, each of whom represents a heartbreaking story of loss, which news coverage, including our own, is simply unequipped to appropriately cover. As to how unfathomable that 350,000 and climbing number actually is, well, if you had um, a sold-out basketball arena and it was attacked by terrorists who blew it up and killed every single person inside of it, which would, on its own, I'm sure, be a landmark disaster in this country that we as a nation would likely respond to with unprecedented action, if that happened... And then we saw it happen again, that same horrific event, blow up an entire sold-out basketball arena. And then we saw that happen 17 more times, 17 sold-out arenas in 17 other states over the course of nine months, killing every single person inside those arenas. Well, then you might be able to get some sense of the scale of this tragedy that we have so blithely relegated to a number uh, on the side of the cable news screen that most of us likely do not even notice anymore. Another way to re-remind ourselves of this uh, incomprehensible tragedy and its death toll, uh, it's it's now uh, the equivalent of 9-11 happening 115 times over the past 10 months. That's 115 9-11s all over the past 10 months, all on Donald Trump's watch. And he barely, if at all, ever even mentions it, despite a 9-11s worth of death uh, pretty much happening every single day now. Uh, And by the way, there are enough Americans currently in hospitals right now that if they all die, it would amount to Another 41 9-11s on top of that. So, um, Happy New Year. As noted, uh, this is going to be a very tough week. I hope you got some rest over the holidays. Uh, In case you are unclear about how rough this week could be, I would cite the extraordinary short, very pointed op-ed published on Saturday in The Washington Post, written by all 10 living former secretaries of defense, including two that have been fired by Donald Trump himself. As described by AP in an extraordinary rebuke of President Donald Trump, all 10 living former secretaries of defense cautioned on Sunday against any move to involve the military in pursuing claims of election fraud, arguing that it would take the country into, quote, dangerous, unlawful and unconstitutional territory. The 10 men, both Democrats and Republicans, implicitly questioned Trump's willingness to follow his constitutional duty to peacefully relinquish power on January 20, following the November 3 election and subsequent recounts in some states, as well as unsuccessful court challenges. The outcome of the 2020 election is clear, they argued. They said, quote, the time for questioning the results has passed. The time for the formal counting of the Electoral College votes as prescribed in the Constitution and statute 
has arrived. They're referring to the Electoral Count Act of 1887. We'll be talking about that today. Um, They write that efforts to involve the U.S. armed forces in resolving election disputes would take us into dangerous, unlawful and unconstitutional territory, they say. Civilian and military officials who direct or carry out such measures would be accountable, including potentially facing criminal penalties, they write, for the grave consequences of their actions on our republic. A number of senior military officers, including General Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have said publicly in recent weeks that the military has no role in determining the outcome of U.S. elections and that their loyalty is to the Constitution, not to an individual leader or a political party. Nonetheless, for some reason, 10 former Pentagon leaders felt it necessary to publish this statement at this time in advance of Congress's role in affirming the Electoral College vote and Joe Biden's very clear win on Wednesday of this week. The 10 former Pentagon leaders also warned in their post article of the dangers of of, uh, impending a full and smooth transition at the Defense Department prior to Inauguration Day as part of a transfer of power to President-elect Joe Biden, who has complained in recent days of efforts by Trump-appointed Pentagon officials to obstruct that transition. The opinion article in the Post was signed by Dick Cheney, William Perry, Don Rumsfeld, William Cohn, Robert Gates, Leon Panetta, Chuck Hagel, Ash Carter, James Mattis, and Mark Esper. Mattis was Trump's first defense secretary. He resigned in 2018. He was succeeded by Esper, who was fired just days after the November 3 election. The Post uh, reported, and this might be the most chilling aspect, at least for me, Uh, They reported that the idea for writing the opinion piece began with a conversation between Dick Cheney and Eric Edelman, a retired ambassador and former Senate, uh, former senior Pentagon official about how Trump might seek to use the military in the coming days. And whatever that conversation was, it appears to have rattled Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney, of all people, was rattled enough that he felt it necessary to help convene all of the living former defense secretaries to make this no uncertain terms statement in a way that Donald Trump and his current apparatchiks and sycophants recently installed into the leadership at the Pentagon would hear that message. Okay, so, you know, it's kind of bad when even Dick Cheney is rattled. You think? Yeah. As if concerns about the fragile mental state of the president of the United States at this time and and his days in power uh, continue to wane despite the best efforts of, of, uh, of, of both Trump and his supporters to try and somehow overturn the clear will of the American people expressed on November 3rd, at least according to all of the best available evidence that we have at this time. Uh, Those concerns uh, should have ticked up a notch for all Americans uh, in reading this uh, this op ed from these 10 former Pentagon chiefs. I know they did for me, as well as upon the news which broke on Sunday morning regarding a Saturday phone call between Donald Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, who have we have reported on in great detail on this program over the last Several years at this point, 
folks are only now beginning to learn his his name, at least those uh, who don't listen to the broadcast. Um, Anyway, uh, this was uh, this call. We heard a seemingly unstable and agitated president who is bullying and cajoling and threatening the secretary of state of Georgia for his unwillingness to, quote, recalculate election results in the peach state in order to afford enough votes to Donald Trump to reverse the certified results in Georgia. That following three separate counts of the ballots, one done by hand, the other two done by computers, as well as an audit of signatures in one key county, as Trump had long demanded. For the record, as this uh, news broke late last week while we were off uh, for the New Year's break, I want to make sure you know that a state law uh, state law enforcement audit of more than 15,000 absentee ballot envelope signatures, the signatures that are on the ballots that on the not on the ballots, on the envelopes in which the ballots are uh, stored, the secrecy envelopes and then sent in uh, 15,000 absentee ballot envelopes in Cobb County, Georgia, were investigated by law enforcement in the state and they found no fraud nor ir- any irregularities at all in those 15,000 envelopes. Between the Secretary of State's office and the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, investigators found just a handful of minor issues among the randomly selected 15,000 envelopes that they reviewed. Nine of those envelopes had uh, total, nine total, had signatures that investigators believed did not match official records. In one of the cases, uh, because a voter's spouse apparently signed his envelope for him, another envelope was missing a signature. And investigators then confirmed with all 10 of those voters that, yes, they had, in fact, cast the ballots in question, even in cases where they believed that signature did not appear to match uh, a signature that was on record from a from a voter. So the bottom line, according to the investigators themselves, quote, no fraudulent absentee ballots were identified during that audit. Trump has long and repeatedly insisted uh, that a signature audit of those envelopes would prove that 2020 was a fraudulent election in Georgia. The Trump campaign sued Georgia officials earlier this month in an attempt to force a signature audit. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger then announced that audit a few days later, and now we have the results of it where they found zero problems at least with the envelopes they examined, 15,000 of them randomly selected, demonstrating that election officials who examined the signatures before the vote, at least in Cobb County, at least according to this pretty large sample, had a 99.99% accuracy rate. Following the audit last week, the Republican Secretary of State Raffensperger said, quote, this audit disproves the only credible allegations the Trump campaign had against the strength of Georgia's signature match process. But seemingly responding to the audit's results, Trump moved the goalposts yet again, tweeting last week, quote, when are we going to be allowed to do a signature verification in Fulton County, Georgia? He added in the same tweet falsely that Pennsylvania just found 205,000 votes more than they had voters. Therefore, he said, we win Pennsylvania. 
You mean, therefore, he lied. We win Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yes, he, he did lie. Uh, Trump also went on uh, to complain about Raffensperger's, quote, brother, a man uh, named Ron Raffensperger, who is an executive apparently at a Chinese tech company. Uh, tweeted, Trump tweeted, quote, now it turns out that Brad R's brother works for China. And they definitely don't want Trump. So disgusting, he added. Hashtag MAGA. Well, as it turns out, you will be shocked to learn that uh, despite sharing a last name, Ron Raffensperger apparently has no relation whatsoever to the Georgia Secretary of State. Uh, But it was the phone call, a potentially criminal one at that, from Trump to Raffensperger on Saturday That has really exposed the uh, manic, sore loser, crybaby Trump's current dangerously fragile disposition, at least in my opinion. As reported by Amy Gardner, who uh, broke this extraordinary scoop in The Washington Post on Sunday, President Trump urged fellow Republican Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, to, quote, find enough votes to overturn his defeat in an extraordinary one-hour phone call Saturday that legal scholars described as a flagrant abuse of power and a potential criminal act. The Washington Post obtained a recording of the conversation in which Trump alternately berated Raffensperger, tried to flatter him, begged him to act, and threatened him with vague criminal consequences if the Secretary of State refused to pursue The false claims at one point warning that Raffensperger was taking, quote, a big risk, I guess, by not doing what it was the president wanted him to do. Now, I hope to play a few minutes from this call a little bit later in the show. And and if there's time, I'll welcome your thoughts in response to it. Uh, Our phone number is 818-985-5735 if you want to write it down or even get in line right now, because really, as as good as. Gardner's reporting here is in The Washington Post. It does not do justice to how bonkers, really just how bonkers this entire conversation was. Even the experts that I'll try and and um, uh, that I'll try and, and and share from here, even they don't uh, do justice to just how insane this is. So I will encourage you to go to the Washington Post and read the entire transcript if you haven't, or listen to the entire call, better still, uh, which they have available to listen to the audio there. In any event, as Gardner notes, throughout the call, Raffensperger and his office, um, his office's general counsel, uh, who was also on the call, rejected Trump's assertions, explaining that the president is relying on debunked conspiracy theories and that President-elect Joe Biden's 11,779-vote victory in Georgia was, in fact, fair and accurate. Trump dismissed that argument, saying the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, that you have recalculated. Raffensperger responded, well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. At another point, Trump said, so look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have because we won the state. Later, he said, what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break, fellas. 
the rambling and at times incoherent conversation, as Gardner reports it, offered a remarkable glimpse of how consumed and desperate the president remains about his loss, unwilling or unable to let the matter go and still asserting he can reverse the results in enough battleground states to remain in office. He repeated again and again on the call, quote, there's no way I lost Georgia. There's no way we won by hundreds of thousands of votes. He repeatedly insisted on Sunday. Trump tweeted that he had, in fact, spoken to Raffensperger, saying the secretary of state was, quote, unwilling or unable to answer questions such as the ballots under the table scam, ballot destruction, out of state voters, dead voters and more. He has no clue. In fact, each of those claims that Trump made in that uh, tweet, each of them has been disproven time and again as the allegations have been made uh, over the past two months. He just keeps repeating the same nonsense. Raffensperger responded uh, to the tweet with his own, saying respectfully, President Trump, what you're saying is not true. The details of the call drew demands from top Democrats for criminal investigations. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, campaigning in Georgia, called Trump's conversation, quote, a bald, uh, a bald faced, bold abuse of power by the president. Biden's top campaign lawyer said the recording, quote, captures the whole disgraceful story about Donald Trump's assault on American democracy. Republicans, on the other hand, were largely silent. Senator Ted Cruz, who is currently leading a charge of about a dozen Senate Republicans to challenge the electoral vote affirmation scheduled for this Wednesday. When asked about the call while campaigning in Georgia on Sunday uh, for the two GOP senators who faced the uh, runoff on Tuesday, he dodged the question completely. Uh, during their uh, recorded phone conversations, uh, Trump issued a vague threat to both Raffensperger and Ryan Germany, the secretary of state's general counsel, suggesting that if they do not find that thousands of ballots in Fulton County have been illegally destroyed to block investigators, they would be subject to criminal liability. Well, if the ballots were destroyed, that would, in fact, uh, be subject to criminal liability. Um, but that said, both Raffensperger and Germany disputed that any ballots had been destroyed, even as Trump insisted he was certain based on rumors on the Internet, which he actually cited, he was certain that ballots in Fulton County were, quote, being shredded and that Dominion voting systems were removing their machines from the state, for which there is also zero actual evidence. The call to Raffensperger came as scores of Republicans have pledged to challenge the Electoral College's vote for Biden when Congress convenes for the joint session on Wednesday, where at least in theory, according to all of the smartest pundits, Many of the same ones who told us that Donald Trump would never become president in the first place. Many of those folks are telling us that uh, Republicans simply do not have the votes to successfully thwart Biden's victory. There is nothing we should worry about. Well, we will discuss that with my guest momentarily as well. But Trump, in the meantime, has been urging supporters to travel to Washington to protest the outcome of that vote in Congress on Wednesday, January 6th. And today, 
D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser uh, has called up the National Guard to try and maintain orderly protests, which are expected in the nation's capital this week, as state and federal officials there are bracing for clashes. Ed Foley, the law professor at Ohio State University, said the legal questions about all of this are murky. He said it could be difficult to prove that Trump knew he was encouraging illegal behavior. Richard Pildes, constitutional law professor at New York University, uh, notes that the actions may have violated several federal statutes. He says the president is either knowingly attempting to coerce state officials into corrupting the integrity of the election or is so deluded that he actually believes what he's saying. Either way, Foley said uh, that Trump was already tripping the emergency meter. He says we were at 12 on a scale of 1 to 10. Now, he says, we're at 15. As noted, I will try to play some of that audio from that call a bit later because reporting on it really does not do it justice to give you the sense of Donald Trump's emotional and psychological state at this point. Uh, But first, uh, with the emergency meter now at 15, according to Ed Foley, uh, I want to step through what may or may not happen on Wednesday when Congress convenes for what is usually the pro forma exercise of affirming the Electoral College vote count which has now been certified in all 50 states to find that Joe Biden with 306 electoral college votes. By the way, that's two more than Trump eventually received in 2016, uh, that Biden has easily defeated Donald Trump with his 232 electoral votes to meet the long established constitutional requirement for winning the presidency. Longtime democracy advocate, election integrity expert, and election law scholar Paul Leto joins me next to discuss the state of play in Congress on Wednesday and to hopefully clear up what I know is a very confusing moment right now as to what the hell is going on in the election, in Congress, and incredibly enough, in our constitutionally representative Democratic Republic at this point. That is straight ahead on the broadcast. It's great to be back in it. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at Brad bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Yeah, that's what they tell me. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Far-right Republican senator and potential 2024 uh, presidential contender Tom Cotton of Arkansas on Sunday night spoke out against his GOP colleagues' planned attempt to nullify the Electoral College's votes when Congress is scheduled to officially 
seal President-elect Joe Biden's victory on Wednesday of this week. In a statement, Cotton said, quote, under the Constitution and federal law, Congress's power is limited to counting electoral votes submitted by the states. If Congress purported to overturn the results of the Electoral College, it would not only exceed that power, but also establish unwise precedents. The Republican senator warned that his colleagues, and that was Tom Cotton, by the way, not Mitt Romney, not Susan Collins, but Tom Cotton. Uh, he warned that uh, his colleague's scheme would, quote, essentially and essentially end presidential elections, imperil the Electoral College and, quote, take another big step toward federalizing election law. His remarks came in response to Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, another likely 2024 hopeful, who on uh, Saturday announced that he and 11 other Republican senators would vote to reject electoral votes from what he claimed to be, quote, disputed states. The Texas Republican said the group would demand a commission that would carry out a, quote, emergency 10-day audit of the election results, which Trump and his GOP allies have furiously worked to uh, undermine on the basis of usually evidence-free, largely easily debunked conspiracies about massive vote fraud, which state election officials and even Trump's own attorney general, former now Attorney General Bill Barr, have all disputed. Cruz's statement said that once this 10-day commission has completed its work, individual states would evaluate the commission's findings and could convene a special legislative session to certify a change in their vote if needed. Now, prior to Cruz's, uh, the, the Cruz dozen, I guess we could call them, uh, Missouri's Senator Josh Hawley, yet another 2024 hopeful, also announced that he, too, would object to certification. Several other GOP senators besides Cotton have pushed back against Cruz's ploy, including Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, even Trump loyalist Senator Lindsey Graham. But Hawley's vow to object to the certification of the Electoral College is based on the claim that a handful of states lost by Trump, including Pennsylvania and Georgia, had failed to follow their own election laws and that the U.S. Constitution allows only state legislatures, not governors, not secretaries of state, not even state courts, to set any rules or regulations or procedures at all when it comes to elections and voting. Only state legislators do. That argument, however, has been rejected several times in many of the court cases brought by Team Trump over the past two months, though often with, uh, without actually deciding on that particular issue. On Friday, a federal judge in Texas rejected a lawsuit by Congressman Louis Gohmert of Texas uh, that was filed against Vice President Mike Pence, who, as president of the Senate, will preside over Wednesday's affirmation of the Electoral College vote in a joint session. Gomert sought to overturn the results of the presidential election by claiming that the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which spells out the process that will be used on Wednesday, that that act is actually unconstitutional and a violation of the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, even though it has been used since 1888 in some 33 presidential elections without challenge. But the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, Gomert argued, describes a different process than the Electoral College uh, Act of 1887 when it comes to handling challenges to the Electoral College's re college results. 
The ECA specifies that on Wednesday, the two chambers meet in a joint session. The vice president then reads the certified tallies from each state. And if there is an objection in writing to any state's tallies by at least one senator and one congressman, the two bodies will immediately split up, return to their separate chambers, debate for two hours, and they will vote on whether to accept the challenge or deny it in each chamber. In a straight up or down majority vote, they will decide whether to accept that challenge or to accept the state certified results. A majority in each chamber would be needed in both chambers to overrule the results from any given state. Democrats appear confident that will not happen. They command a slim majority in the U.S. House, presuming everyone shows up, presuming there's not too many people out sick with COVID. So they say no matter what happens in the U.S. Senate, the House would block any such move. Uh, no matter whether there are more than 100 GOP members of the House now who have vowed to challenge the results from several of the states that Trump lost. Gohmert and another suit filed by the right-wing Thomas More Society argued that the process spelled out by the ECA violates the 12th Amendment, which, they argue, is the process that should be followed. That allows the vice president essentially they argue, to decide on his own if an electoral college result is accurate and if it or if it is in dispute, if that's what is decided by the vice president, then the matter is thrown immediately to the House and to the House only. And then the House decides the matter not based on a majority of votes, not an up or down vote, but on a one state, one vote basis, meaning that while Democrats have a majority of representatives, in fact, Republicans actually have a majority of the state delegations in the House. They have majority control of House delegations in 27 states, which would be very bad news indeed for Joe Biden if uh, somehow the Republicans are able to make the argument that the ECA is in fact unconstitutional and the process to be followed should in fact be the 12th Amendment. Now, um, if that is invoked on Wednesday... Uh, well, that would be bad news for Democrats, uh, but it was not only uh, Gomert's case that was rejected on that basis by a Texas judge. Um, it was also dismissed by a three-judge panel of Republicans of the very right-wing 5th U.S. Court of Appeals over the weekend as well. And on Monday, the case filed by the Thomas More Society was similarly rejected, with the court finding that uh, the argument about uh, the Constitution and the fact that only legislatures can decide any election laws without any help at all, any delegation to the secretary of state or the governor, that that argument is indeed invalid. Uh, now, some are calling for sanctions uh, against the Thomas More Society for bringing that case at all. But sanctions or otherwise, none of this sanctions don't really matter to members of Congress right now. They are vowing, along with Donald Trump, to overturn this year's presidential election. And frequent listeners to this program will know that we have vowed since Election Day, as if we were in an actual horror film, and arguably we are, that we would not turn away from the supposedly dead monster until all the credits have finished rolling. 
And if you haven't been paying attention, uh, the credits may or may not have even yet begun to roll. Joining us now is someone who has been following these various legal and political developments with at least as much concern as we have on this program arguably much more. Paul Leto is a longtime election integrity advocate, an election law scholar, and a democracy activist. He publishes encyclopedia articles on election law and election fraud. He's the author of a chapter on Bush v. Gore and has a law degree from Seattle University. He was uh, most recently cited on the presidential election by Politico, which recently compared the challenges brought by some Democrats in 2004 against the Electoral College votes in Ohio to the challenges now being brought by Republicans today. Mr. Leto, it has been a long time, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you very much. So uh, let me cut to the chase right here uh, because I had to cover a lot before we could get to you. My apologies, Paul. Uh, Does Team Trump have any path at this point, as you see it, to overturn democracy and steal the election for Donald Trump? And if so, what is that path? Yes, they have a path because the courts have kind of failed us here by uh, dismissing all of the suits on standing grounds. So when and if the Republicans decide to make these kind of constitutional claims and just say, uh, you know, the, we have to vote on a one-state, one-vote basis in the House. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's questionable whether Democrats have standing because the court already ruled that Gomert has no standing. The court already ruled in Gomert versus Pence, the Arizona electors have no standing. Well, if they don't have standing, then Biden electors don't have standing either. So, so it's it's questionable whether judicial review can be obtained when and if they try to make this kind of move. Now, I know you've made that argument that, uh, you know, citing Gomert, uh, you know, have, being told he has no standing to challenge this at all and to challenge what it is that Mike Pence does. So are you saying that Mike Pence, if he wanted to, essentially could uh, look at these uh, election results as they are handed to him by the, you know, the House and Senate parliamentarians or whoever it is, and he could look at the piece of the, the votes described on that piece of paper and say, I cannot, uh, in fact, confirm that these are uh, the legitimate votes that were cast in the Electoral College. Therefore, I am invoking the 12th Amendment and the House should go and vote on whether to to accept these uh, results or not. Yeah, uh, Pence could make that kind of a claim. Uh, Pence has publicly said that he looks forward to presenting evidence uh, before specifically before Congress, which is which would be unusual. So. Looks like Pence uh, may have some sort of evidentiary hearing in mind, perhaps different from or the same as what the 11 senators have advocated, a 10-day commission. That would be a middle-level position Pence could take. He could take the high-power position and just decide that the alternate electors will be counted. And then, of course, the Democrats would then object. They would have to be organized Mm -hmm. enough to object to that and then go to, uh, to the vote. He could also take a low-power position, meaning he could just say, gee, I've got these two alternate slates here. I have no idea and uh, which one to count and just wait for political action from one party or the other to, uh, uh, to you know, prefer one slate over the other, and then the political battle is on. So pretty much whether Pence takes a low-power position, medium-power, or high-powered position, it's all leading to uh, a similar standoff. So it all, in many cases, rests right now on Mike Pence and 
I don't know how much uh, comfort anyone should take from that. But you're claiming that at that point, uh, if the Democrats objected and wished to run to a court, you know, run up the street to the Supreme Court at that point and challenge what was going on, you're saying that because uh, a similar challenge was made by Gohmert and they found that Gohmert, as member of the House, did not have standing to challenge, that Democrats would also not have standing. So let me challenge you there. If the entire House... Uh, Democrats presumably have a majority. Well, we know they have a majority in the House, just a straight up or down vote. So they control the House. If they quickly move to, uh, you know, appeal this matter to the Supreme Court, can they not make the case that, yeah, Gohmert didn't have argument, uh, didn't have standing. He was just one guy when he made his argument. But we are the U.S. House and when you argued that Gomert was not being harmed, now we are actually being harmed because this is actually happening. Wouldn't that be an argument that Democrats could and arguably would make in such a case? They definitely would make that argument, and it would be a little bit better than the Gomert argument because you'd have more of an actual case or controversy as opposed to Gomert is speculating with good reason that this is, going, this is going to come up. However, you know, the argument against Gohmert's standing specifically said that the diminution or the reduction in political power of a, of a congressman's weight is not something that would grant standing, either one congressman or several congressmen. Now, that w- argument was actually made and accepted by the court. So, you know, the argument's a little bit better for standing, but the Supreme Court could also say, as they've hinted, mm-hmm. uh, subsequent to Bush versus Gore, that presidential elections are political questions. Uh, Larry Tribe, actually, who was one of Gore's attorneys, has since twice stated in writing that, you know, I I should have objected to jurisdiction in Bush versus Gore because Mm -hmm. it's a political question. The court has no jurisdiction. So the court could very, the Supreme Court could very well decide, you know what, we're just going to stay out of this now. But the problem there is if they stay out of it, then you've got nothing to resolve a deadlock in Congress. Yeah. I mean, then who knows? I mean, the Senate would vote one way. The House would vote another. I mean, as I understand it, none of this can actually even come up during this pro forma session. Right. I mean, this is just supposed to be sort of a scripted. The president stands there. He gets handed the electoral votes. He reads them off. If there's any objection, then there is a process. The ECA, the Electoral Count Act. But if Republicans are going to claim that that is unconstitutional, I guess, then what? And if the Supreme Court is not going to decide that matter, we're still back at then what on Wednesday? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to say because there's so many variables. But one possibility is that the House presented with, you know, this idea that they got to vote on a one state, one House basis simply walks out and refuses to participate. And then, you know, that's a constitutional crisis because you're supposed to under the ECA, at least go debate for five days and then be in continuous session 24-7 until January 20th. And then if that doesn't resolve the presidency, then the Presidential Succession Act applies and uh, 
the new president would be acting President Pelosi pending the resolution right. of uh, all the other issues. <laughs> do you do you concur if we if we take the uh, Republicans argument here uh, that the ECA is unconstitutional and somehow they're able to make that case? Uh, do you concur then that the 12th Amendment gives the vice president the constitutional right to decide who did and didn't win the election essentially all by himself? Uh, no. And the reason for that, though, is, I mean, I have to admit that this is my own particular take, but I think it's very, very well grounded. When the 12th Amendment was passed, you had hand-counted paper ballots everywhere. And that was part of the whole assumptions into which the 12th Amendment is. So when you have Congress sitting there, they are sitting there as witnesses to a vote count and they don't have any more powers than vote counters do in precincts. Mm -hmm. They can look at the ballots themselves, and if the certificate is improper or, you know, there's some limited objections that can be made. But what vote counters can't do is raise political attacks, radical political attacks on the entire system. And if you understand that that is the the whole assumption in which the 12th Amendment was passed, you'll understand that this is a political you know, power play that's that's invalid under the Constitution, because all they're supposed to be doing is ministerial counting of votes. Uh, I, I it's a sort of an unfair question to ask you here, Paul Leto, with about a minute left in this segment. Uh, but as a longtime election integrity advocate, uh, what can or should we learn from this mess? I realize nobody knows what is going to happen here, but I do want people to understand what may happen here, what could happen on Wednesday, despite the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying this is going nowhere. This challenge to the electoral votes on Wednesday is going nowhere. But yeah, uh, what we should learn yeah. is, is that uh, what you and uh, election integrity advocates have talked about now for decades is coming home to roost. And that is, A big, big part of this is the inherent uncertainty when votes are purely processed through computers. Nobody really knows, unless until there's a hand recount, what the result is. And partisan uh, people can attach to that uncertainty and that doubt any theory uh, that they wish to, you know, in order to keep hope alive. So we need a voting system that leaves no doubt as to the result. Mm-hmm. And in order to have that, you have to have transparency. You have to have people actually observing it and saying, okay, yeah, there really were these votes. And basically, you know, it's not, this is, this is all the chickens coming home to roost yeah. uh, in terms of our non-transparent uh, voting system. And it's also the chickens coming home to roost on uh, the fact that the court system is failing to do its job by mm. dismissing on procedural grounds rather than reaching the merits. Mm. Because politics is the land of endless disputes, right? Democrat versus Republican never really gets resolved. We need a judicial system that has a higher intellectual bandwidth, more focus, and a a system of ethical fairness to really look at the merits of the case and get down to it. And even though Trump lost 50 times, they really rarely if ever got to the merits. And that's an enormous problem with the judicial system. That that is... Yeah, both systems have failed us, and the lesson that we ought to learn isn't that 
there's no such thing as election fraud. The lesson is learned that is we need a voting system that we can count on and that we can believe in. That we can know has been secure and accurate. It's not enough that it was secure or accurate or that we believe it was secure or accurate. The people from all parties, including Donald Trump and his crazy supporters, they need to be able to know that it was, in fact, uh, accurate and uh, uh, secure. Paul Leto, uh, thank you for uh, all of your work for so many years on this, for following this case. We may have to shout at you again, uh, depending on what goes on on Wednesday. Uh, I'll point folks uh, towards your Twitter feed. If you'd like to uh, complain about him, you are welcome to do so there. He is Paul underscore Leto. That's L-E-H-T-O. Uh, Paul, thanks for all your work on this, and uh, I suspect we'll be staying in touch, my friend. Great. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, sir. All right, quick break, and we'll be back. Uh, try to play some of that audio, at least, from over the weekend between Trump and uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, because it is amazing. And it kind of underscores just how unstable this presidency is and how unstable this moment is. I'm Brad Friedman. You are listening to the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. If you are traveling back to Georgia. Back to Georgia. I can't get out of Georgia. We have been covering Georgia, I think, closer than any other state in the union for the past two years. Is that yes. fair to say, Desi Doyle? And it is important, and it shows why. <sighs> yes, it does. All right. Uh, well, uh, Donald Trump uh, pressured the Republican Secretary of State of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, to, quote, find enough votes to overturn Joe Biden's win in the state's presidential election, repeatedly citing disproven claims of fraud, raising the prospect of a, quote, criminal offense by Raffensperger if officials did not change the vote count uh, to to basically hand the uh, election to Donald Trump. The phone call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger on Saturday was just the latest step in this unprecedented effort by a sitting president to press a state official to reverse the outcome of a free and fair election that, by all available evidence, he lost. The Republican president has refused to accept his loss to Joe Biden, uh, and he repeatedly argued that Raffensperger could simply change the certified results. But during this hour-long phone call that I would urge you to listen to or at least read the transcript of at The Washington Post, I'll link to it tonight when I post tonight's show at bradblog.com, um, this desperate, twisted, sort of sore loser uh, who's clearly willing to break the law to get what he wants, a second term, uh, his his emotional state does not come across in the reporting. But if you listen to what he says, 
in the full transcript, you get a sense of just how stunning and arguably quite frightening this moment is. We don't have time for the whole thing. I'd play the whole hour if I could. But just to give you a sense, if you haven't heard it, here's a few minutes from that hour-long phone call to give you an idea if you haven't heard it. We have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's there's nothing wrong with with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having the having a correct the people of Georgia are angry, and these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night, along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. You know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Now, do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, that Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. No, Ryan Germany. No, Dominion is not um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having. Well, but no, but, but have they moved? Have they? Have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. You sure, Ryan? I'm sure. You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I no, you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have. You don't have. Not even close. You got. You're off by hundreds of thousands of votes. You know what they did, and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense, and and you know you can't let that happen. That's that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk, but they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard, and they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. So, So tell me... Brad, what are we going to do? We won the election, and it's not fair to take it away from us like this. And it's going to be very costly in many ways. And I think you have to say that you're going to reexamine it, and you can reexamine it, but, but reexamine it with people that want to find answers, not people that don't want to find answers. Uh, for instance, I'm hearing Ryan, and he's probably... I'm sure a great lawyer and everything, but he's making statements about those ballots that he doesn't know. But he's making them with such he he did make them with surety, but now I think he's less sure because the answer is they all went to Biden, and that alone <laughs> no, wins us the election by a lot. Nope. <laughs> you know, so. Mr. President, uh, you have people that submit information, and we have our people that submit information. And then it comes before the court, and the court then has to make a determination. We have to stand by our numbers. We believe our numbers are right. 
Well, under law, you're not allowed to give faulty election results, okay? You're not allowed to do that, and that's what you've done. This is a faulty election result. And honestly, this should go very fast. You should meet tomorrow because you have a big election election coming up. And because of what you've done to the president, you know, the people of, of uh, Georgia know that this was a scam. And because of what you've done to the president, a lot of people aren't going out to vote. And a lot of Republicans are going to vote negative because they hate what you did to the president. Okay? They hate it. And they're going to vote. And if you would be respected, if really respected, if this thing could be straightened out before the election. You have a big election coming up on Tuesday. It goes on and on. We will link to the full audio as the madness continues. We'll link to the full audio at brandblog.com tonight. And the madness, I'm sure, will continue tomorrow right here on the Brandcast. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my board operator, Federico Garcia, to my uh, and to my guest, Paul Leto, as well as all of you for tuning in today. Uh, you can find me on the Twitters at and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog, or you can drop me email. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman, and I mean it. Good luck, world.